in the industry, we hand out brand style guides, right? Or brand manuals, right? And they're sometimes uh, treated, you know, as the sort of like the Bible that the, the, the in-house design team has to conform to. But I actually don't see style guide that way. I see style guide as parameters as you know pretty pretty clear yet a little bit loose guardrail yeah to identify mostly what not to do but not to prescribe what you can do okay so you know when a brand brand style guide is in the hand of say a really talented and very skilled designer you know you can anticipate more and even better work coming out from that designer. But when a style guide is in the hand of a untrained, perhaps untalented, unskilled designer, it doesn't matter how detailed you spec the style guide. Something is bound to be to, to, to be wrong. So right, so that's the human factor that we cannot control via a style guide. You are listening to One More Question, a podcast by the people of Nice Work. One of the things we often catch ourselves saying is, can we ask you one more question? This podcast is all about sharing that, the best conversations we've had with significant brand builders, experts, and communicators. The people that we've encountered as we go about our work of making people care by creating impactful brands. Season three is focused on unpacking the topic of branding. We talk to people who design brands, own brands, build brands, and even those who hire for brands. We explore what brands look like and how they behave across a wide spectrum, from world-renowned brands with massive budgets like Spotify to companies that are making big waves on small budgets. If you're looking for insights on the best ways to invest in and build your brand, this is the season for you. I'm your host, Ross Drakes. On this, the 50th episode of One More Question, I'm really excited to be talking to Natasha Jen. Natasha is an award-winning designer, an educator, and a partner at Pentagram. Born in Taipei, Taiwan, she joined Pentagram's New York office in 2012. Her clients include high-profile tech companies and startups like Google, Waze, Magic Leap, Nike, Puma, Target, Ralph Lauren Home, Kate Spade, Chanel, Harvard Art Museums, and the Guggenheim Foundation. Natasha's earned awards from almost every major design competition. And on top of all of that, she serves on the board of the Storefront for Art and Architecture in New York. She's also served as the board of directors of the New York chapter of the American Institute of Graphic Arts from 2014 to 2017. She's a faculty member at the School of Visual Arts. She's a guest critic at the Harvard Graduate School of Design, the Yale University School of Art, Cooper Union, Rhode Island School of Design and the Maryland Institute College of Art. She's also just lovely to talk to. We talk about Natasha's drive for patience and detail and how those two things buck the trend in what's happening in our industry. She shares how she thinks about how to set yourself up to do great work and we hear about her redesigning of the American flag. Enjoy. Natasha, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really Really appreciate your time and, and energy. I know how busy you are. So thank you for making the time to speak to me. Thank you for having me, Ross. Uh, it's a pleasure meeting you. And hello, everyone. Awesome. So, I mean, 
the the first question I ask is always kind of the same, and I enjoy the different takes on it. But you've got quite a different take on what is a brand. Can you talk a little bit about you know what do you think a brand is as someone who's created so many sort of iconic brands in your career? Well, uh, a brand is a very complex living organism that ultimately is about perception. But this organism has its own, you know, set of ethos and values and, you know, personality traits, oftentimes um, expressed through the products and services that the, you know, the brand um, offers to the world. But then, you know, um, since it's a living organism, um, a brand can behave really well if it's managed well, but it can also misbehave, right? Um, there's no such thing as a, as a perfect um, brand. It's something that you need to put a lot of effort, you know, on a daily basis to um, maintain. Um, brand ultimately is about how we recognize something, right, through the use of products and services and the values and the, you know, particular traits or spirits of a brand that can offer something um, that I think is compelling or resonating. Uh, with with the audience, yeah, that's my I mean, definition on a brand. I mean, I love this idea that it's a living organism. You know, and I think for for listeners of the podcast, I'm interested to know when you go about designing an identity, knowing that at some point you're going to hand it back to the client and they're going to mm -hmm. have to carry it forward. How do you like? How do you think about this as a living organism? What are the things you try and instill into the, the brand so that it can be handed over in a meaningful way and not kind of get lost the second that it's no longer in your direct control to, to roll it out? That's a great question. Um, one thing that I, one evaluation that I, that I always do when I work with a client, you know, um, a brand, um, is to assess their maturity level as an as an as a living organism. Typically, um, a brand that say has been operating, you know, in the market for uh, for years now and has a pretty mature um, business model has a better setup in-house um, design or art department that can actually roll out or evolve or develop the brand work that we hand off a little bit better than say a very young organization and again you know it's, it's no different from looking at say you know people right um when you're working with a very young person you know um there there are always chances that things can go wrong um so I try to assess the, the the brand's ability through that lens that is to look at their business and organizational maturity. But sometimes, you know, the age of the organization does not necessarily equate capability um, of the design department. So you have to, again, go in there and really understand how they staff the team and what type of work that they're responsible to do. Okay. So for example, 
um, designers who are in charge of um, more production type of work serve a very specific um, function and, you know, meaningful function that it would be unfair to expect them to, say, evolve the work and come up with something related but new. That's a different type of designer. Yeah. So an organization needs to have both in order to, first of all, maintain the design quality. Yeah. Which has to do with, yeah, patience, has to do with levels of detail. But you also need to have designers who can actually bring out some new work based on the work that they're given. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's that right. That involves creativity. That involves, you know, the desire to push the boundary, but know um, how to balance, right? The, 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 the creative ambition versus um, being appropriate at the same time, right? That's a different type of designer. I just think that, you know, you need to have both. Yeah. So I try to assess the very fabric of the in-house team, um, through that lens as well. And sometimes, um, we help them staff the right, um, designers to a team. Sometimes they don't necessarily have all the roles in place. Right. Um, and we would, you know, work with them and figure out how to help them staff so that they can really succeed. Mm. I think that's fascinating thinking about it, not just from a design level and not just about like, this is what I'm creating and this is how brilliant and clever it is. It's how does this thing, how is it staffed? How is it organized? How is it delivered beyond today? Because I think what you said is that they need to breathe new work into this thing because no brand designer can design everything with the first brief. It's just. Exactly. Yeah, it, it evolves as time goes on exactly. and the challenges roll. Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, we, you know, in the industry, we hand out brand style guides, right? Or brand manuals, right? And they're sometimes uh, treated, you know, as the sort of like the Bible that the, the, the in-house design team has to conform to. But I actually don't see style guide that way. I see style guide as parameters as you know pretty pretty clear yet a little bit loose guardrail yeah to identify mostly what not to do but Mm. not to prescribe what you can do okay so you know when a brand brand style guide is in the hand of say a really talented and very skilled designer you know you can anticipate more and even better work coming out from that designer. But when a style guide is in the hand of a untrained, perhaps untalented, unskilled designer, it doesn't matter how detailed you spec the style guide. Something is bound to be to, to, to be wrong. So right. So that's the human factor that we cannot control mm. via a style guide. So so how do you, I mean, in your work, how do you guide your clients to sort of mitigate this risk? Because it is a business risk that they face. If you hand over a perfect brand or a beautiful brand that's well thought out and then their team sort of ham fists it out into the world, it's not necessarily going to solve the challenge that they initially came to you to solve. How do you, how do you help them to navigate that path? I would say, you know, um, my my recommendation is always to start 
working together um, a little bit on, you know, I would say project-based assignments, right? Um, collectively before the style guide is handed off, is complete. Because through that, you know, um, working process, for example, you know, say we're in, in the midst of finalizing a style guide and the client needs to um, push out a, you know, a campaign, okay, that uses design elements that we created, but the elements are not you know, necessarily hardened into a style guide as yet, but they're approved. Yeah. So, you know, the client starts to work with their own in-house team or, you know, um, uh, or even a different agency, for example, using the elements that we established. And that sort of overlap is a very important time period to assess. First of all, if the elements that we establish are great, you know, um, to, to serve the purpose. Right. And secondly, for us to see how they use the elements. Yeah. Right. So that's a kind of, Hey, you know, we've identified the ingredients for the dish. Great. Now here's the recipe, right? You kind of know the recipe, but it's not fully written yet, but you know, the taste of the dish, you kind of know how to cook it. So now why don't you go make the dish? Yeah. And we're going to, we're here. Yeah. You know, call us. Yeah. If you need us in the kitchen, but <laughs> we're going to taste the dish that you make as well. Right. And then if the dish doesn't taste great, we can actually look at, Hey, what went wrong? Right. Is it the ingredients that are not great or is it how we cook them that needs a little bit tweaking? Yeah, it's it's very much a, a a kind of again a living process. Again, you you can't just anticipate that somebody would take, you know, a style guide and just be able to run with it. There has to be a short period. You know, sometimes it's through a project. Sometimes it's three months. You know, you work together. Yeah, to kind of make sure that the dishes come out right. I think this is a, a very valuable thought. It's, it's I think sometimes a an under thought about portion of the process is that mm -hmm. transition period from yeah. from the designer to the in-house team or to the agency or to whoever's kind of carrying the the, the project forward i love that that metaphor of the cooking yeah. like we need to help you to get this right because we haven't solved it all we haven't necessarily answered every question but we need to make sure that you know how to approach asking the questions um, and I think if people think about that, it's, it can make for a more valuable project. Yeah. Now, I think cooking is a great metaphor for design generally. And I, and I, and I use cooking as a metaphor for, you know, client discussions a lot. Yeah. I know that is not the most intellectual thing to, you know, to, to, to associate design to, but you know, cooking is something that everybody has experience with and something that they can understand. I mean, I'm, I'm interested to know because, you know, looking at your portfolio of work, it's it's very, it's like, there's not like a set style that I can identify carrying through the body of work. But you mentioned two things when you were talking earlier. One was patience and detail. And now that you've said that, I can, when I relook at the body of work, I'm like, oh, there is a lot of patience here and there is a lot of detail. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach 
you know, kind of creating these things because the brands end up so different. Um, and I, I, you know, as a designer, I struggle to put a sense on like, this is your visual style. How do you think about a brief or a brand when it, it comes at you? Well, you know, um, we, uh, we, we, we do research, um, which is always a really important part to, to our process. And this research is not to just, you know, look for, uh, appropriate references, you know, which oftentimes results in the form of a mood board. Yeah. And I know that that's a, that's, that's a kind of step by that, that many design, um, studios where designers take, right. To assemble mood boards. But, um, what I want to do is to always to get down to the very bottom of it. That is, you know, what is this thing? What is this subject? What is, what is this topic? And a lot of times these, you know, projects uh, came to us as something that are so alien that we were like, wow, are we really qualified to, to do this? Seriously, I'm not joking. Okay. And I have so many projects. Some of them didn't, you know, come out to the world um, that came in at that level of alienness, you know, and a lot of times it has to do with, um, a form of technology, for example, that is not fully, you know, operating the world yet. Right. For example, how do you, how do you even, you know, um, talk about artificial intelligence, although it is a buzzword that's being thrown around. Right. Um, so you can't talk about artificial intelligence without understanding neural networks. Okay. So once you get into neural networks is such a complex world. So you have to determine how technical do I want to get, get to this? Yeah. How technical do I need to understand this in order to help propel ideas? Right. And that's something that we always, uh, always do, which is also, which also explains why the, 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 the total body of the work doesn't have a singular style to it, but mm. rather we, we always design very contextually, very specifically, but within that specific context, we want to be as creative and as expressive as possible. So yeah, this, I think this, you can say it's an impulse. And it, I think it's my impulse as a designer is that I'm interested in expressions. I'm interested in expressions that can actually, you know, do something more than just being recognizable, memorable expressions. I'm interested in expressions becoming some sort of cultural, you know, um, cultural signal, for example. I'm interested in expressions that can, you know, associate um, the present with, you know, the past. So, you know, I'm always trying to find these, you know, special angles in a project. Yeah. I love that. And I think you can see, you know, when I think of your work, it's very much, it's almost like it could be described as design for designers because the craft and the, the nuance is, is palpable um, in, in the work that you create. And I love hearing how you, you think about it. I mean, one of the jobs that I, I asked you about, and I don't think it was a paid job, but 
you called it an unthinkable project was to redesign mm. the American flag, which I think as a piece of design, the American flag is probably, you know, in the top 20 most iconic visual emblems of all time. What mm -hmm. was it like to receive a brief like that and to, to even begin and, and to start working on something like that? You know, um, when, when, when the brief, um, came to us, it, you know, it was, it was an assignment, um, given by the New York times, you know, and they give out assignments to designers, you know, on sometimes challenging, if not curious, you know, subjects, right. And those assignments sometimes can really expose the, your internal flaw as a, as a designer. Um, so when I got the assignment, you know, I cringed a little bit. Okay. <laughs> And typically, um, the timing on such assignment is short. Okay. It, you know, it's never like, Hey, you have, you know, four weeks to sketch, you know, you have four rounds, you know, it's like, okay, you have maybe a week, two weeks, you know, is one go and just send us your work. Right. Um, so, so, and by that's at the same time, that is really liberating too. You know, um, it wasn't a transactional, you know, uh, relationship, right? It was an editorial piece that designers are invited to contribute their work to. So I think that that nature alleviated a lot of stress already. Yeah. When mm -hmm. things are not transactional, I think half of the stress is gone. Yeah. So that actually made the project very enjoyable to do. And we actually did it as a team. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the, the assignment was given to every designer on the team and they, uh, they sketch free form. Okay. And we looked at a lot of very interesting ideas. We looked at some inappropriate ideas. We looked at some really <laughs> weird ideas and that we had no idea what we were looking at, you know, for example. Right. But that was when things got really fun and we did it, you know, pretty quickly, um, as a team and everybody, you know, gather their sketches, um, in a Google slide. Um, and we looked at them together and, you know, some ideas emerge right from that, um, sketching process. And we started to actually really refine and to try to sharpen, um, the ideas a little bit better. Um, yeah. So, you know, overall it was a really enjoyable, um, process, but, you know, I enjoy seeing, um, the team, sketching for the same project because you know that is really when you get to see their mind right and how their minds operate very differently that's super interesting mm -hmm. and i mean uh, i guess it seems like you have quite a philosophical thought to a lot of the work that you do and you know there's sort of a theme you seem to work a hell of a lot in kind of I'm not sure if Asian identity is the right word, but you work with a lot of these kind of organizations that are tackling that. Is is your personal identity something you carry into your work or do you just attract it to those kinds of projects because of who you are and what your kind of context is? Well, you know, uh, I, I mean, I, I am Asian and you know, uh, to be specific, um, I grew up in Taiwan. Um, my parents, uh, are from China. So, you know, I'm a different type of, I would say a sub subset of, um, Taiwanese. Right. Um, so that is a very specific cultural context. Right. 
Um, but I think that when I'm when I'm designing, I see myself as a designer. I see myself without any identity filter to it. Meaning, I don't see myself as a woman designer. I don't see myself as an Asian designer. I don't see myself as an immigrant designer. I see myself as a designer, and that that view has a lot to do with a very personal impulse. That is, I like to design and I like to make things as expressive yet as appropriate as possible. That has nothing to do with like being a woman or being Asian or being whatever. You know what I mean? That has to do with me being me, mm-hmm. you know. But I grew up in um, in, a, in 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 an environment where it's visually super rich. Yeah, if you just Google like Taipei City Street, okay, the the images that you will see are just signages. Yeah, so in Taiwan, it ta- Taiwan is really a signage country. You know, Taipei mm-hmm. is a signage city. So growing up there. Um, I was exposed to uh, typography, for example, that I had no idea, okay, that is actually typography, right? And I was exposed to actually 3D typography because signage is ultimately three-dimensional, right? So growing up, I, 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 would, I didn't know what those things are, but I literally grew up being surrounded by 3D and colorful typography around me. That has, I think, has impact on me because I gravitate toward expressive typography, mm-hmm. right? That's a kind of childhood influence, yeah, that, 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 you know, that visual experience living there shaped my personal, you know, creative and aesthetic tendencies, too, yeah, those I think are something that I can articulate a little bit better than say identity related, you know, concerns. I think that is fascinating because I mean, definitely kind of type as form is a much more evolved concept in the East. I think because the characters are much more expressive and the characters are much more diverse and signage is actually just a word, you know, kind of, but it's, very well considered how thick it is, how big it is, how tall it is, what the shape is, which I think is not as strong in in kind of you know with with English or, or Latin sort of typography. It's not nearly as as strong. Um, but I'm also interested. You now live in New York, which uh, I think for me next to to Berlin is probably the most type covered sort of urban environment that I've ever experienced mm-hmm. um, compared to obviously I think Asia, there's a hell of a lot more, um, but yeah. did, was that accidental or um, is it just a, a great happenstance? Well, uh, I, 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 always, I mean, I always wanted to come to New York, you know, um, without actually knowing much about New York, you know, the New York that I knew when I was in Taiwan was through primarily movies and magazines, um, American magazines, mm. um, and fashion brands, right. That came out from New York city, you know, um, Calvin Klein, for example, you know, uh, that I thought was the coolest thing. Um, Donna Karen, you know, um, these quintessential New York brands really somehow 
created, you know, a lot of um, mystery around the city. So I came here. Yeah. Um, but I have to say that, you know, New York really is, is where, where the pause, you know, of everything is, right? Um, things are just happening a lot faster here. And I really, I enjoy um, the speed of things here. But I also, you know, enjoy that this is a, just, you know, a massive pool of talents of all sorts. And you encounter, you know, incredible talents. Um, in so many different ways. Yeah. That's so cool. I just want to loop back a bit. You, you mentioned the word expressive a few times that you think that you want your design to be expressive. How do you tie like an organization or the belief or the way they go about things or their people or their products to expression in design? How do you kind of link those two um, and then how do you sell that to the clients? Because obviously you're now trying to use your world to to talk about theirs. Well, I think that one biggest, I think that the biggest gap for, um, for, for, for non-designers, you know, and, and clients included, um, when it comes to form and intangible things such as, you know, values right they have a hard time first of all putting the two together sometimes the two actually don't go together meaning not everything can be translated formally and visually yeah that i think is something that i try very hard to um to communicate if not educate my clients you know for example if you have a set of you know brand uh values you know we are persistent we uh we we are ambitious uh we are caring we are uh brave right for example yeah none of these words are one-to-one visual words Mm. yeah but the amalgamation of them does have visual implications yeah so it's not a one-to-one translation it's more like I would say three step away translation. Yeah. And we work really hard on establishing that. Yeah. In our, you know, design process. Yeah. And that can be something really, really fun for clients, or that can be something extremely painful for them because it's really getting them outside of their comfort zone. It's basically getting them to see things in such a way that they never experienced before. Mm. You know what I mean? But they have to be able to conceptualize this in order to make the following design reviews and the design discussions meaningful. Yeah. Without, without, without that, without them being able to conceptualize this, oh, it's not one-to-one. Like brave doesn't necessarily translate to very bold type. Okay, but when it's brave and it's caring too, it perhaps translates to something that is a combination of type and color and imagery. Yeah, they have to be able to conceptualize that first so that when they see the design, they will go, oh, now it's actually getting clearer to me. Yeah, without that, we end up, we, t- we typically end up revising in a circle. Mm. 
You get stuck yeah. in the so that, I don't right, like so that's it. Your crap, is that I don't like it. Yeah. And I don't know why I don't like it. You know, I'm sure that you must have heard that kind of feedback, right? You mm. know, there's just something that's not working here. I don't know, right? Um, try harder, right? So that that is something that I would always try to avoid. But, you know, to your question, does craft mean something? Is craft important? Absolutely. Everything is is actually made, you know, through some sort of human effort, right? Be physical or digital, yeah. Um, and it's that effort that needs to actually have a level of crafts to it, mm-hmm. so that right, so that we're you know in, so so that what we make can be something that stand the test of time, that you know enable um, better things in the world, and that's really craft. Yeah, I mean, I love. I think you've you've said so much there, and uh, for me the. The interesting takeaway is this idea of getting, helping your clients to reach a base level of understanding in order to be able to contribute meaningfully to the design discussion. And uh, I think that's a, a fascinating step that people often miss. And then they're frustrated when their designs are not necessarily signed off or clients are frustrated because they're like, there's something wrong. Like you said, there's something wrong, but I can't, I can't say what it is. So all I can say is, is it the color or, you know, can we try a different font, which is them reaching for an attempt to, to make the bridge into our world. I love this idea of going, oh, cool. We can establish like a base level of understanding and common language. And from there we can build up. And once we yeah. agree, whether you don't like that pattern or not is is not as difficult to to resolve as long as you've bought the the kind of the foundational thinking. I think that's a very valuable um, kind of insight that you shared. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And you know, uh, I've, I've I've learned that lesson through you know hard experiences. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, interestingly, I'm, I'm not sure if I can talk about it, but because it's my podcast, I will. You mentioned that there was a design presentation that didn't go so well. Um, but what I'm interested in is the thing after that you said is that you were trying to think about it like, is this a design problem or is this a people problem? And, and yeah. I think that's a fascinating way of thinking about our craft, that part of it is creating the visual, but part of it is also convincing human beings to to understand or to make the leap or to communicate yeah it's, it's you know it, it, it's navigating human psychology right it's also navigating an organization that has its own particular you know hierarchies you know uh power structure ways of working cultures so on and so forth yeah and that is half of the design in my mm. mind that is half of the the selling of design is is through like wrestling and understanding organizational behavior, power structure, and basic human psychology. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I have to say, humbly say, I don't always succeed. Yeah. And if I actually miss a step on that, Right, you know, such as you know, not paying attention or not paying you know enough attention to that from the you know from the get go, 
I typically end up in a pretty, you know, disastrous situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, yeah. I think, I think this is valuable for for both people who are building brands and people who own brands to understand that. I think, as the designer of the brand, getting into the nuance of the world and the culture and the humans and the way they think is important. But I also think for the clients to hear that it's important to allow your designers and to encourage them to actually engage and to understand. Because I think coming full circle back to where we started this discussion is. At some point, the designers of the brand are going to hand it over. And if it can't survive that culture, if it can't survive the way that organization lives and breathes and acts, that brand is going to die, um, you know, very quickly. So I think it's such a valuable piece that, that can go unnoticed. And I think sometimes clients hold the designers at an arm's length. They don't necessarily let them into the building. They don't let them see the bad stuff or, you know, actually understand how things work. They kind of want to keep them in the boardroom, you know, and, and see beautiful presentations, which I don't think is right. Yeah. I think that that typically creates, you know, uh, a very stressful relationship, you know, um, because the, the designers, um, actually don't know who their real audience is at the company level. I mean, the mm-hmm. work is going to go outside. Yeah, the, the real audience is the world. Yeah. But when designers actually don't know the audience, the immediate audience who is making decisions on their work, I don't think it never produces any, you know, positive work in my experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For example, if the board is the ultimate decision maker um, on a design, then I think the designers need to talk to the board, listen to the board, you know, understand, yeah, their priorities and their anxieties, right? So your design can really consider these things are important to them. Mm. Yeah, but oftentimes, you know, clients would would like to keep their board really far away from the process. Yeah. And try and go for the the big ta-da moment. We're like, look. Yeah, (laughs) ta-da moment. And then, right, nothing works and the board gets shocked. You know, they don't recognize anything. They don't know where it came from. Um, That's a kind of typical thing that I see a lot, you know, Mm. um, in the design industry. Yeah. Uh, I think that's that's very true. So, so Natasha, I mean, kind of as my closing question to you, you were talking a little bit in our interview when we were like, uh, asked you what was sort of keeping you up or inspiring you. And you talked about the, the context of our, of this industry that we work in and how that's shifting and how you're trying to find your, your voice or place in it. So I'd, I'd love to get your kind of take on where you think the context of the industry is heading and sort of how you think about that, because I guess you've you've been leading the industry for such a long time. It's interesting to hear oh, what your your thinking is. Well, I've been practicing for uh, I think twenty twenty something, a little bit over twenty years now. Okay, so just as a practitioner, right? Um, I what I have observed, um, I think, are are, are are nothing new. Okay, but there are two there are two uh, big big changes that. Um, 
I think are impacting um, our practice in a very big way. So the first thing is the increased uh, speed of everything from, you know, our, you know, the, the, the speed of communication is, you know, basically 24 hours now. It's always immediate, right? Through emails, you know, um, Slack, text messages, social media, and so on and so forth. So that speed and the expectation on turning things over quickly, I think has added a lot of stress on the work itself and on how we work. Because I really believe that it takes time to do good work. And I know that I sound really old when I'm saying this, <laughs> right? But but great work really takes time. And you need to actually look at it over and over again. You need to shape it, reshape it. You need to, you know, go back to the kitchen again and, you know, try to actually do something better, right? So all that takes time. It's just like, you know, becoming the world's greatest athlete takes time and takes insane amount of training and training takes time. But now the expectation on quick turnaround has become a norm. That is something that, you know, um, I'm trying to figure out how to respond to that, you know, and sometimes, you know, we, we, we don't, we we just don't put ourselves into those situations where we know that the time pressure is not going to help us create the best work. Yeah. We just stay away from those situations. But then I'm also trying to think about how we can also, you know, educate clients a little bit better and, you know, help them to accomplish their deadlines and their goals. But really kind of figure out how we can actually allow for more generous time to do things. That's one thing. The second thing is the, you know, the, 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 the total dependence on data and on the kind of averaged point of view on design. Okay. And that is testing, right? So testing can be meaningful in many different ways when it comes to the functionalities of things, when it comes to the performance of things. But testing can also be incredibly detrimental on design itself because ultimately what we get is an averaged point of view. And Mm. good design never comes out from a generalized, in the middle of the road kind of point of view. Good design always has a very specific stance on it yeah and again that is something that yeah we're you know we that 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 again we 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 think that we have to evaluate you know not all testing is bad but sometimes testing is a way for organizations to prioritize their preferences yeah so say if there are five options on the table they want to figure out which one of the five or which three of the five are the, you know, most preferred um, options, right? So that that is, is, is a way to just figure out, okay, preferences. But if testing becomes a way of shaping the design and, you know, revising the design, that is highly problematic to me. And I try to stay away from those situations. But that, again, is becoming more and more, you know, um, commonplace in the industry. I mean, I think once again, it's very thoughtful kind of take on it. Um, 
I always try and convince our clients when I say that our job is to to make people care. It's to make people feel something with the work that we do. And so often we're creating something that needs to live for five years, seven years, 10 years. So yeah. why are we doing it in three weeks? Why, why? You know, it's like you wouldn't jump into a relationship with someone you know, to live the next decade of your life with them, having spent a week or two of them on holiday, it doesn't make any logical sense. Um, That's so a think, great metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. And I think so often the kind of business drive and the like, this has to be done Q1, like got to get it done. And then if you interrogate, you're like, why? They're like, was someone put it on a plan? You know, it's sitting on a plan and the plan says Q1. So we're going to execute Q1. I'm like, that doesn't necessarily <laughs> line up as logically. Um, I know, so. I know. Yeah, sometimes, you know, PowerPoint decks really became the driver, right, for things mm. that we do. But they're ultimately PowerPoint, PowerPoint decks. If you really get into the logic behind what's written and what's on the page, you realize that, oh, there are a lot of things that don't make sense. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I think we we out of time today, but thank you like so much. Your your kind of insights and philosophy is amazing. Uh, thank and I think you. For me, it's great talking to you. The the strongest takeaway that I can think about is this idea of setting a baseline with the clients. And I think if we're looking at this idea of time and data, like if you set a good baseline, if you can build that kind of solid common ground. You can build from there. You can have empathy for their scenario, where they are, what they need to achieve. And you can also then give yourself the space to deliver according to what they need. So, so Natasha, I mean, thank you so much. I'm, I'm You're fully, welcome. fully inspired and very excited that we've managed to have this chat. So thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great talking to you. Awesome. And we'll catch all of you in the next one. Bye bye. Thanks for listening. We believe that sharing knowledge is an obligation. So if you know someone who's building a brand or needs some inspiration for their brand, please share this podcast with them. This is our third season, and we'd be grateful if you'd hit that subscribe button so you're the first one to know when a new episode comes out. Or even better, leave us a review and tell the world how much you enjoy listening. This really helps. One more question is brought to you by the people at NiceWork. NiceWork is a purpose-driven company helping people who want to make a dent in the world by building brands that people give a shit about. We're based in Johannesburg, South Africa and serve companies around the world. If you'd like to know more, partner with us or make a suggestion, reach out at www.nicework.co.za. And if you're one of those really old school people, send us a letter and we'll make you a mixtape.